Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week in the book of Titus. So if you want to grab your Bibles and open up to chapter 1, we're going to be finishing out chapter 1 this morning. If you don't happen to have your Bible with you, you'll find that in front of you in the pew or seat or whatever we call it, there are Bibles there. So just look in front of you and uh, pull it open to the book of Titus. Um, So we started this third week now into the series, uh, working through the epistle of Titus. And uh, I always, for me, I'm, 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 I like to have things kind of in order. Uh, uh, The the biggest test of patience for me was having children and knowing that I can't always have order. (laughs) So the Lord's like, I'm going to grow you in this way. But in working through this passage, I, you know, I really, really want to be able to pull this out and understand the context that we had uh, just previous to uh, verses 10 through 16 where we are uh, camping out this morning. Uh, So what I'll do for us is let me read through uh, chapter 1 just to give us that full context, and then we'll do a couple points of revision and what Pastor Jacob and Pastor Bobby preached for us last couple of weeks, and that will lead right into verses 10 through 16 that we'll be looking at this morning. So Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker. Not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, When I was uh, growing up in in my early days of my faith... Uh, when I was studying the scripture and learned how to read it and apply it and think through it, uh, one of the 
this is, will sound kind of interesting, I guess, because uh, it's not everyone's, most people's experience, but one of the, the toughest genres for me in the Bible were actually epistles, not prophecy or some of those other books or, or types of literature, not wisdom literature or the poetry even. It was, it was the epistles, mainly because I felt like I was snooping on someone's mail, you know? Uh, you have Paul here writing to Titus. I'm not Titus. I don't get how this has anything to do with me. I've never even been to to Crete, much less to Europe. So how do I, how am I to read this and, and have it applied to me? Because clearly we see, and Pastor Jacob introduced for us um, a couple weeks ago, we have Paul as the author, Titus, his true son in their common faith. <clears throat> so, so what am I supposed to do with this as, as a believer? Uh, one uh, verse that comes to mind that I would encourage you to jot down, it's a great one, it's helped me to kind of orient all of my, my Bible study is Romans 15.4, also penned by Paul. And he noted this, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we might have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. At the time that Paul wrote this, he's most likely referring to what we now know as the Old Testament. However, with the progression of Revelation displayed through now the closing of the New Testament, uh, this is an encouraging word for us. We can have confidence to know that all of the scriptures, even the, the one, even the parts of scripture that may seem disconnected or even aloof from us where we are today in our lives, have direct spiritual implication and practical impact for how we live today. And what, what, a, what a wonderful promise that all of scripture, as we read earlier in 2 Timothy 3, has influence and impact for our lives. So even as we read this letter, you're not snooping, you're not opening someone's mail, it's okay. There is there's spiritual import here. There's something for us to learn and apply. I want us to look at one other thing in this first part because I think it sets the context really for the entire letter, but it definitely has impact for what we're going to be looking at closely today. And it's the second part of verse 1, that Paul, in his ministry, in his writing, was doing so for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is a major theme of Paul's ministry. It's all over his writings in the New Testament. And this theme is simply this, that right belief should lead to right living. You can jot that down if you want, if you're taking notes. Right belief should lead to right living. Another, another way to say this would be, sound doctrine is the necessary foundation for building a house of holy work. Sound doctrine is the necessary foundation. And that this knowledge of this truth, the, this faithful message that elders are called to keep in verse 9, is the gospel. Uh, one thing that I love about our church, and I've said this many times before to many people, is that uh, it's, the gospel is more than a catchphrase for us. Think about that. Uh, I, I taught the first uh, class a few weeks ago for our new membership class. And it's, for me, it's always encouraging and revitalizing for me to remind myself of things that I know. And the beauty of the gospel is that it has impact, not just for several, several years ago when I first responded to the gospel. It has impact for me today. That Christ died for me, that he transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What a wonderful promise that we can rest in. And this is what sound doctrine really is. The teachings of scripture point to the gospel. 
when we think about soundness, and if you read through, we, read, we did this a few weeks ago in our, um, our community group. We read through Titus in preparation for the series. You'll notice as you're reading through it, a couple of things come out to us that we see echoed in the second part of verse 1. Soundness of doctrine, even good works. Soundness ref- basically refers to uh, things that are healthy and whole. We want to think about sound doctrine as this. It's the fertile and nourishing soil by which Christians are planted. That's sound doctrine. Doctrine matters. Doctrine doesn't need to be something that's only reserved for the theology student or the seminary student. For every believer, if we are in Christ, doctrine should be important for us. And if you want to think of it a different way, sorry, this thing keeps moving. If you want to think about it in a different way, doctrine is just simply what the Bible teaches about anything. That's doctrine, what it teaches about family, what it teaches about the church, what it teaches about the gospel. This is doctrine. And it is sound. It is fertile soil by which we can be planted. What are good works then? Good works, they're mentioned every six or seven times in this book. All three chapters talk about good works. What are they? Good works represent the fundamental expectation for all Christians. In other words, if you are a Christian, if we're here, you've confessed Christ, you've been made new in him, then the expectation, the very baseline expectation, is that you are producing fruit. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but that's the expectation for us. In fact, Paul even says in chapter 3 that, that the faithful Christians in Crete and elsewhere devoted themselves to, 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 uh, to good works. So if... Sound doctrine is the fertile soil in which we're planted. Good works are the beautiful fruit that is born from this tree that is nourished, anchored, and is regularly pruned. Now, we look at the commission in verse 5. We're on Crete, okay? We're in Crete. There's a church here, but the church is lacking something. We see from Pastor Bobby's sermon last week, they're lacking elders. They're lacking shepherds that are protecting the flock, feeding the flock, seeing them grow in holiness and righteousness. Um, combating the, the, the evil that's around them. So that's part of why Paul, uh, Paul sent Titus there. But also, the church is under threat. They're not just lacking, they're under threat. And that's going to be the focus of our attention today, that they are under threat by these false teachers. Uh, Pastor Bobby's uh, sermon last week outlined all the different qualities of elders. But again, the major it all culminates in verse 9. Uh, for us this, uh, as we kind of launched into our section this morning. And again, the restatement of the theme here that right belief should lead to right living. In verse 9, Paul says that the faithful elder should continue holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Here we can see how the gospel serves as the singular foundation. This is it for right living and for the ministry of the elder. Out of the faithful message alone, elders are called to fulfill two crucial ministries. And you see them there, the ministry of encouragement and the ministry of refutation. That's going to be our focus this morning. Uh, When we get into chapter 2, we'll get more into the ministry of encouragement. I know that we'll all love that. But this morning, in being faithful in the preaching of the word, we're going to focus on an aspect of ministry, a necessary aspect of ministry that often gets all the bad press, uh, and in many, many ways, and many times, in many places, sadly, it's neglected altogether. And that is the ministry of rebuking. Paul closes the first chapter with the reasons that we need to refute, why it's necessary for elders to refute. Now, your translations may also say reproof or rebuke or correct in the shepherding of the flock. 
in the context in the church in Crete, and we'll see this in a moment, and we saw this as we read, the threat is these false teachers coming in to the church or already in the church that are divisive, they're confusing the flock, they're actually upending a lot of order. And Paul is trying to help equip Titus on how to best put elders in place to work against this. Sadly, and again, this is where the scriptures are very applicable. We may not be Titus. Maybe we weren't uh, the uh, original recipient of this particular letter. But as spiritual recipients, we have to understand that false teachers are not just of a bygone era. False teachers are very much within our culture today. They're within the broader, quote-unquote, church culture today. Uh, Through Paul's divinely inspired instruction here, we as Christians, but especially as elders, as, as an elder, I should be seeking, we should be seeking to defend the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. False teaching cuts against that. That doesn't see godliness as the fruit. So essentially, here are my three points this morning. First, Paul wants Titus to understand the importance of identifying who these false teachers are. It's hard to rebuke something that you don't know or see. And so we have to understand a little bit better about the characteristics, the traits, um, these essential features of the false teachers. That will lead us to the second point, which is kind of the crux of the entire passage here, the command to refute false teachers. And then we will end with a spiritual appraisal of false teachers in verses 15 through 16. So let's look again at verses 10 through 11, and we'll walk, we'll walk through this passage together this morning. The importance of identifying false teachers. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't, in order to get money dishonestly. So what we're going to be seeing here is first looking at the essential features, very much in line with what we saw as the theme of the book, right? Sound doctrine and good works. Sound doctrine leading to godliness. Well, let's take a look at these false teachers for a moment. And it's easy on the, on the outward level to see all the negativity, the, the, the bad fruits, although it seems that way. But let's start, we don't always start there in the scriptures actually, uh, as we examine things biblically and we analyze them biblically, we never start at the fruit. We always should start at the root. And so let's take a look at the selfish and corrupt attitude of the false teachers. And this is again the root. How are they described in verse 10? They're described as rebellious people. And I don't want to go past that word that precedes that, many rebellious people. Unfortunately, it was very common here in this church. There just wasn't a couple one-offs here. There were actually many rebellious people. This refers to the previous verse, those that are contradicting sound doctrine. That's why it's necessary to refute them. These rebellious people literally are unruly. They're, they refuse to walk in submission to the, to the teaching of the Bible. They broke rank. Um, I think about a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which calls all Christians... Uh, not just pastors, to be ready to, yes, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Those are extremely important, but also to admonish the unruly. Uh, That word brings about really military imagery, 
right? Soldiers that are equipped, ready for battle. They're standing in formation. They're ready to engage the enemy. But those who break ranks are the ones that leave their duty. They're not under the submission of the general. They're not going forward in battle according to their orders. And again, that, in, that, that compromises all of the ranks. That compromises not just the ranks, but it fights against the general's orders there and opens people up to attack. And so these rebellious people are not just fostering and fomenting rebellion externally, but their own hearts are corrupted at the root. They are unruly. They're seeking to seduce other people, to lead them astray, and that, again, is uh, part of their character. Another insight into the particulars of the false teachers here is this phrase, from the circumcision party. Um, our community group a few weeks ago read through, I mentioned read through Titus uh, to prepare for the, the series, and one of our uh, members uh, said, that sounds like the worst type of party I could imagine, right? Um, and it's, it's, but that's not what's going on. It's not a get-together where they're like, let's all get circumcised. Uh, it's referring to particularly uh, a faulty Jewish teaching that was being added into what the gospel was already proclaiming. Um, a lot of historical records show, even, even for many, many years before this, that there had always been a large Jewish population in Crete. And there are uh, people that uh, many commentators believe that these, these members of the circumcision party were actually Judaizers. Uh, Danny Aiken makes a really interesting point about this in kind of their, uh, ad, what they advocated for. He says this, that the, the Judaizers, and, and they're not new to the scriptures. We see them even in Acts in the beginning of the birth of the church. Uh, they advocated for a Jesus plus theology, a Jesus plus theology which is always a minus Jesus theology. Think about that. They advocated for a Jesus plus theology, which is always a minus Jesus theology. I was an English major in college. I told someone I don't do math at all. It's not my thing. Uh, but this kind of math I understand. If we add to Jesus, we're actually subtracting from the gospel. Add to Christ, and you actually subtract Christ. If you think about the previous series that we just finished on the solas, that's exactly the point that the reformers saw in the problem with the Catholic Church. They were holding to things that you could say are, are good and right to some extent. I mean, Jesus was lifted up as important, things like that. But they were adding to the scriptures. And by doing that, they were actually diluting and taking away from the integrity of the gospel message. So these Judaizers argued that Christians needed to keep the Mosaic law. They needed to continue keeping Jewish tradition in order to be faithful, in order to produce those good works. You've got to be ritually pure as well. Uh, there are some commentators that even say that, that what we're seeing here happening in Titus is the precursor to what later became Gnosticism, full-blown Gnosticism, and Jewish mysticism that is not really rooted at all in anything even remotely associated with the God of the Bible. And so, obviously, you see those things drift. When we start disconnecting or untethering ourselves from the scriptures, things only drift one way, and it's not towards holiness. It's always towards the enemy. So we see that their root is corrupted pretty badly. There's a lot of spiritual rot there. But what about their fruit? Well, these verses also point to the fact that these false teachers are devious schemers in their practice. So their root's pretty bad, and looks like their fruit is as well. It, it says here that these rebellious people are full of empty talk and deception in verse 10. Now, that seems kind of innocent, okay? I would be concerned if the false teachers were dragging people from their homes and maybe stoning them. That seems pretty aggressive. But empty talk, eh, 
What's so, what's so dangerous about that? Well, you have to understand in the way the scriptures talk about our speech, it matters. It matters a lot. In fact, our speech says a lot about the allegiances of our heart. Uh, empty, empty talk is never born out of wisdom. You can take that to the bank. Okay? Empty talk is never born of wisdom. It's always born of ignorance, and I would even say arrogance. In, in First and Second Timothy, Paul describes this as fruitless discussion. I would definitely agree with that, but I would say even, even more so, and he, he points to this as well, it's not just fruitless. It's actually actively leading people away from the straight and narrow path. As we see in Proverbs 3, right, we're not called to lean on our own understanding, but empty talk really beckons us to do that. You know, you can't fully trust the Lord. You have to somehow rely on your old noggin. Maybe you need to do what feels good, things that really tempt us in our senses. And the Judaizers were were mixing good, sound doctrine with things that were not sound. And you can't bring those two things together and come out on the other end in a way that glorifies the Lord. But if you want to get to the heart of the matter even more so, Jesus spoke about empty talk as well. Matthew 12 Verses 33 through 37, you can jot that reference down, Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Jesus spoke of this idleness from religious, religious leaders of the day. Again, interesting to note that this empty talk is not coming from the babbling fool in the town square. That, that, that Jesus is saying that empty talk is coming from the people that were identified as the most religious in society. Well, what does he say in Matthew 12? Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces things, uh, good things from his storehouse of good. An evil person produces evil things from his storehouse of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Every word that we speak, words matter. In the book of James, it's a, it can be a fire that sets a whole forest ablaze and do, do great destruction. So these, these false teachers are using their tongue. Instead of, say, instead of using words that are of life, words that are encouraging, words that glorify God. Again, that's why we were created to sing and worship as we did this morning. Their words are used for evil purposes, self-centered purposes. They're deceptive and they are empty. But just like sin is like a stone thrown into a pond with a ripple effect, we see the same thing here with the false teachers. They They are rotten to the core and they're producing fruit of the same kind. But it doesn't just stay to the tree, unfortunately. This false teaching has wreaked havoc on the church in Crete, so much so, again, to even prompt Paul to write this letter. So we see in verse 11 that Paul has pretty strong language here for Titus and for the elders here. He says, it is necessary to silence them, these false teachers. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. He said it's necessary. Another way to, some of your translations may even say, it is the duty of the elders to do this. There's no choice in this matter. If there are false teachings being spread, it is our duty to stop it and to silence them. That literally means to muzzle them, 
right? Where we, this language is not profitable. It's not just fruitless. It's leading people astray. Now, is this an overreaction? Is Paul just kind of getting upset for no reason? Well, if we weren't already convinced that the spiritual rot and the spiritual bad fruit being produced from these uh, false teachers were bad enough, Paul shows us the continuous devastating effects of their poisonous work within the church in Crete. So I would say that the effects clearly support Paul's strong warning here that we should silence, it is necessary to silence these false teachers. And they did three different things. They disturbed the unity of the church, their doctrine was distorted, and they were for dishonest gain. It says here that they were ruining entire households, literally overthrowing into chaos. Again, you have to understand that in, in this idea of being unruly, by breaking ranks, they're not, they're, there's more happening than just a soldier saying, well, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. The impact is severe. Now, everything is thrown into chaos. Everything is thrown into disorder. When you think about God being a God of order, that's not just simply because he thought, yeah, I think it'll be good for me to be a God of order. Order speaks to God's sovereignty. It speaks to his holiness. And if you think about it, all the good gifts of God and what he's given given to us in the family, in the church, and yes, even the government, order is a picture of God's provision. The reason that you all come in here this morning and Pastor Paul orders the service for us isn't just because we think it's a good idea. It helps us to focus our hearts and minds on what is truly important. It makes this whole activity of worship profitable. It glorifies the Lord. If we all came in here and did what was right in our own eyes, not only are you all going to miss the buffet at noon, but it's going to be, it's going to be chaotic, and it's not going to glorify the Lord. It's not going to bring any recognition to him. These false teachers are doing way worse than that. They're introducing heresies into the church which are overthrowing people into chaos. Again, if you think about 1 Thessalonians 4, the church is made up of all different types of saints, those that are very strong in the faith, very knowledgeable, and those that are weak or faint-hearted. These types of heresies are dividing families and they're leading these especially um, uh, weak or frail uh, saints in the faith astray. Uh, James 3, 14 through 16 says that selfish ambition and vain conceit always leads to disorder and every evil thing. Well, if we're seeing chaos and we're seeing things upended in the family of God, it's very easy for us to understand what is the motivation of these false teachers. It's not for the good of the flock. It's not for the glory of God. It is for selfish ambition and vanity. So you see the household of God overall, even individual families are being broken up by these false teachers. So that's disturbing in and of itself, but that's, that's not the end of it, unfortunately. We see that they're teaching what they shouldn't. That's how, that's how all this disunity is being fomented, that they are teaching what they shouldn't. It refers to the heretical nature of their teaching. But I want you to note this. This, this phrase, by teaching what they shouldn't, this is not accidental. The false teachers are not just, oh, words are coming out of my mouth, right? That might seem kind of no-duh. No, it's a no-brainer. But there is an active opposition to the truth here. They know they shouldn't be teaching these things. These things are clearly against what God has provided to us in his word and the order that he has provided. They are teaching what they should not be teaching. Now, we may be thinking about this, maybe a larger picture of false teaching, maybe false teaching that we would, would run into today and go, well, shouldn't Christians be aware 
of some of these dubious efforts. I mean, if I heard false teaching, like trying to introduce some sort of ritualistic, you know, uh, activity as part of my Christian faith, wouldn't I just know that was wrong? Well, here's the, the, the thing about false teaching is it's not, unfortunately, it's not always obvious. Think about Satan's attempts in the garden. They were sly. They were crafty. They were subtle. They were sweet. But they led to disobedience and distrust and sin. So this should be a reminder for us that not all false teaching is obvious. We have to be very, very careful of that. Again, this is why in God's order and plan, he has given the church elders to help fence in and protect the flock. Now, I don't believe there's any false teaching coming out of our church, but there's definitely a lot of false teaching out there. And you just turn on the radio sometimes. And I'm talking about Christian radio sometimes. It's just, it's out there. And we've got to be careful that we measure everything up against what is true. We read this this morning in the passage in Timothy. The time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Think about that. People will not tolerate sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. But according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths. We must be biblically discerning in order to avoid such pitfalls. Only scripture provides the measure for what is true. But my brother and sister, as a word of encouragement today, let me remind you of something that you already know and it's no trouble for me to remind you of this. The Lord, in his goodness to us, has given us the fullness of his revelation in the word of God. And just in case that wasn't enough, and it is, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you if you are his. He will hem you in. He will keep you. But we also have a a, a work to do here in being diligent and being a good student of the word. And how does this finish up with this this uh, continued pattern of, of egregiousness. Well, we see their dishonest gain. All of this, the, the teaching, the upending families, what is all that worth to them? And it's all about the money. They want to get money dishonestly, dishonest gain. This reveals, I think more than anything else, the real motivation behind the false teachers here. It's not the people. It's about things. Uh, I, I've got three small children, um, and I, I, we're constantly, this is a refrain in our household, people are more important than things. This is a constant refrain. Uh, things abound. <laughs> There's always going to be things. But what the scriptures provide for us and show, even the character of God, is that people are more important. These false teachers aren't invested in the people. They don't care about the people's spiritual good. They're only concerned about what they can gain for themselves. They're like those hired hands. They're not real shepherds that are about self-sacrifice. It has nothing to do with biblical love. Do you know that biblical love has nothing to do about how I feel about anything? Do you know that? When we think about love biblically, it's about am I willing to die for the holiness and purity of another person, to give up my rights? That's what love is, and that's how shepherds are to lead. These false teachers, however, are not interested in that. They only want what they want. Now, the first sign of danger or discomfort, they're out of there. 
But as long as they can dishonestly gain, they're going to be for it. Now, what we can see already at this point in the passage is you should notice from Pastor Bobby's uh, sermon last week to where we are right now, uh, very encouragingly, a major distinction and foil between the characteristics of a shepherd and an elder and the characteristics of these false teachers. The shepherds are invested. They're blameless. They're not for dishonest gain. They're for, the, they're for the flock, and they're for glorifying the Lord. These false teachers are for themselves. They will do whatever they have to do to get what they want. They're okay with upending families and destroying the unity of the body. Totally opposite things. And we just have to, uh, you know, even take a moment to say, Lord, thank you for your provision in providing elders for our church. Now, this moves to the, the main crux of, of kind of the, the passage today in verses 12 through 14. And this is the command that Paul is giving uh, Titus for the elders here to refute false teachers. So it says this in verse 12, that one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Man, what an awful epitaph. I never. I hope no one ever remembers me in any of those ways. That's uh, pretty awful. I don't think anybody's like, yeah, I'd love to be known as an evil beast. I mean, that's just not what you wake up in the morning and want. But this is a, a, a really powerful and accurate, unfortunately, character testimony against these false prophets. Already at the time of this writing, Paul is actually referring to uh, an ancient Crete poet called Epimenides. Uh, the quote itself is 600 years old by the time of writing here, so it's pretty old already. And he's not writing it just, he's not adding this, it kind of, kind of seems odd when you're reading through the passage to run across that random old proverb and go, what's that about? Well, it's not just because Paul's like, yeah, I want to remind all you Cretans, you are just evil beasts. Well, it, it, it accurately depicts the people of Crete. The, in, in antiquity, Cretans were known for being these types of things. In fact, it, people don't really say it much anymore, but if you ever heard someone say, well, that person's a Cretan, that means they're a liar, they're lazy, they're no good. Uh, hope, again, hopefully you're not using that uh, about anybody. But it's not, yeah, not, not something that somebody wants to be called. But the reason that Paul is using this old quote from an old uh, pagan philosopher is that he's trying to show that what is generally true for the Cretans is specifically true for these false teachers. They are these things. They're, they're liars, they're evil beasts, they're gluttons. And so uh, th- this is something that we're, we're kind of le- leading us into uh, verse 13, the second part of 13. For this reason, for the reason and for the fact that, that they are this, that these false teachers are depicted this way, we are to rebuke them sharply. Um, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was reading a commentary by John MacArthur, and, and, and it kind of goes to the title of my, my sermon here. But he equates, John MacArthur equates the work of elders in this particular setting as the work of a surgeon operating on a body that's diseased. The skilled surgeon has to be quick, deliberate, and decisive if he wants to save the life of his patient. His knife, his scalpel, while it does cut through flesh and bone, is not intended to bring about destruction. It brings about healing. When we read this idea of rebuking them sharply, this is the imagery that comes to mind. It literally means to cut with a penetrating force. Again, you may be asking yourself, well, this is a little overkill. First, we're muzzling these and, and silencing these false teachers, and now there's this deep, penetrating 
um, severe cutting, rebuking of them. Are we, what is that, why, why so aggressive? Um, it's because sin warrants it. Disobedience to God warrants it. We're literally dragging things from the darkness into the light to be revealed. The Word of God is depicted this way in Hebrews chapter 4, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is a precision tool, spiritual tool. It's not, it doesn't bludgeon you. It dissects, it reveals, it exposes to the light, and these are things that glorify the Lord. This sharp rebuke, as aggressive and maybe even penetrating as it sounds, is necessary because we cannot treat sin lightly. We can't treat any adulteration of the gospel, however slight it may seem, lightly. The integrity of the gospel must be kept. Now again, I, I pause and say, wow, Lord, thousands of years after the writing of this, after your death on the cross, your, your literal you know, uh, crucifixion and your, your resurrection from the, from the dead, you have continued to preserve your gospel. Isn't that amazing? You think about all the evil in the world, and you think of 2,000 years of that surely would have snuffed out such a small, seemingly insignificant thing, but it hasn't. The gospel has remained intact, and we're just called to remember that that's the purpose of what elders are doing for the body, for the church. The second part of that phrase, this is my favorite part of the sermon. I love this part is that we're not just, the, 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 the elder as surgeon doesn't just cut for cutting's sake. I mean, you know, if you have a surgeon that's just using a scalpel, that's more like a psychopath, okay? Uh, they're, they're using it intentionally under the right circumstances for what purpose? To bring about healing. It may seem counterintuitive to cut through the flesh to bring about healing, but at times that's necessary. If it's done rightly, it can produce wonderful results. After all that we just looked at, and we've been pretty clear about the rottenness that we see to the core of these false teachers, it amazes me that at this point in our passage that Paul actually says that we are to rebuke them sharply so that they may be, that they may be sound in the faith. Wow. Now, brothers and sisters, if that is true for these actively rebellious false teachers that are looking to upend and divide families and are for dishonest gain... Isn't that a wonderful truth for me and you? That the Lord, in his wonderful provision, has saved us from our sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. Let me tell you, my brother and my sister, you can be my brother and my sister, that the Lord would love to see this true for you as well, that you may be found sound in the faith. Um, I just think that's truly amazing that we can stop and think about that. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. It's simple. People complicate things, but the gospel is simple. We can be made new. The disease of doubt and fear and false teaching even is cured by the wisdom and the work of the word. Nothing else can effectively cut through the collective wisdoms of the world, all the noise out there, than the clarity of the scripture. Let me encourage you, my brother and my sister, be in the word daily. Get in the word. Open it up. Let it, let it cut through and divide what's going on in your heart and mind so that you will be unified in your service to him. And this leads to our last section uh, this morning. 
is we've looked at some features of these false teachers, and we definitely see their impact and the need for elders to refute them. That's all been very, very clear. But there's, there's a deeper spiritual appraisal that needs to happen as well. Because again, uh, everything in life, everything that we encounter, everything that we think, everything that we desire, uh, things that we speculate on, all of these things are connected to a big question. And the question is this, who is God? Is God sovereign? Is he our king? Is he our Lord? Or is God tantamount to a myth? He's not that powerful. He doesn't love us. He doesn't provide for us. Everything is really theological. Again, doctrine and theology aren't just for seminary students. They have implications for us. So, so this last section here in verses 15 through 16, I'll read it in, in a moment, but Paul is trying to, again, bring back to mind this theme that we've already been talking about, um, this theme of good works and sound doctrine, that relationship, fruit to root, your words and what's going on in your heart. All of these things reveal the dynamic of the inner man and the outer man. Verse 15 says, To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work. The inner man in the scriptures is the soul of a person or our heart. It's comprised of what we believe, what we want, what we love, what we think we need. In verse 15, Paul is speaking to the irony of the claims of these false teachers. This is the irony. They believed, as did the Pharisees during Jesus' ministry, that by keeping ritual or outward purity or rules or traditions of their own making, that they would earn some sort of spiritual purity. That the ritual, the outward work, was necessary for the inward work. But this is merely legalism that's disguised as true religion. Luke 11, 37-41 illustrates this point for us very clearly. Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee, and a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. It's more than just washing his hands. Okay, It's a ritual washing. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools. Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything else is clean for you. What Jesus is saying here is that those who believe and have been made clean are no longer under the yoke of sin. But we are now free in Christ to live in liberty and holiness. This is the idea that to the pure, everything is pure. And we're not beholden now to the law. We're not beholden to traditions of men, praise the Lord. Those are always fluctuating. But now we are in Christ. The unregenerate person, however, the person that has not confessed Christ, who is not born again, is still enslaved and defiled by sin. If your soul has not been redeemed by Christ, then, you, then your defiled and unbelieving heart can never produce good works. It's backwards to say, I'll produce good works and that be proof of my faith. That's not the way that works. We have to be inwardly made clean in order to produce the good works that God, by the way, created us to do. 
This is essentially the idea in James chapter 2, verse 14. James asks, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? The false teachers in Titus 1 claim to know God. It says it right there. They claim to know God, but in reality, despite all of their ritual purity and their seemingly righteous, their seeming righteousness, the doctrine promoted by them actually denied God. It denied any notion of fidelity to God or even belonging to him. Their inner man is depicted as this, detestable. Look at it right there at the end of 16. They are detestable. This is the inner man. They're detestable, and their outward man is producing the fruit of disobedience. Without Christ, they are truly unfit for any good work. Now, I don't want to end on a low point. I want to end on a high one. Good to remember that in Christ, with all that he has given to us, we can produce good fruit. And we're expected to produce good fruit. What's happening here with these false teachers, however, is out of their selfish ambition, out of their defiled hearts, they weren't producing good fruit. They were producing fruit of wrathfulness. Um, Christianity is not a passive religion. You know that. Holiness doesn't just fall upon us. We don't just start doing good things because we're really good people. God does even more than any elder as soul surgeon can do. As the, as the great physician, he does a work in the hearts of people that no man could ever do. He makes something that's dead alive. Alive to things that are good and right and pure and lovely. And in that miracle, now we can produce fruit that's in keeping with that righteousness. It glorifies the Lord. It brings him honor. It brings him joy. What a, what a stark picture. Now, what I want us to do in our closing, closing time, I, want, I have some questions that I want to ask you for you to consider in preparation for our silent time of reflection. First one is, do you take sound doctrine for granted? Do you take it for granted? Prayerfully, you don't. Um, I can say that there have been many times in my life, excuse me, where I have, I've taken it for granted. I was telling someone earlier in the first service that, that are visitors this morning um, from, from different backgrounds that uh, I had never really heard expository preaching until I was in college. I, this was very new for me. Um, sound doctrine is something that we can take for granted, but brother and sister don't. Thankfully, our church is committed to it. So, but if you have, maybe, ask the Lord to, to renew your love for it and the importance for it in producing good, fruit, good works. What about this question? Have you, have you found yourself influenced by false teaching? Now, I wouldn't say that this is something that probably is true for, for any of you, but it's a good question to ask. Now, I, I wouldn't say it's not coming from here. <laughs> uh, no, no false teaching from here. But our world is full of these types of things, ideas that sound good, and they may even sound compatible with the Bible, but, but they may not be. Think about books that you're reading or podcasts that you're listening to. Just be sure that you're always measuring those things that you're intaking in with the Bible. And that, that's going to be your measure for what is good and right. 
What about this question? Are you participating in good works in your life today? Is your life a depiction of a tree producing good fruit? Well, why or why not? If not, can you think of specific ways that you can begin producing good fruit for the king? If you have questions about that, we'll be up here to talk with you afterwards. Love Love to talk to you about that. And then the last question is, if you're not currently producing good works, are your current works in any way essentially denying God instead of bringing him glory? Everything about your life, brother and sister, says one of two things. God is great, God should be glorified, or not. Everything. So ask yourself, you may not be a false teacher, we're not in danger of that extreme, but are, are, are there subtle things in my life that I'm allowing to creep in to diminish or uh, discourage a heart of love for God, a heart of love for God that's going to produce good works? Let me pray, and then we'll go into our time of silent reflection, and we can ask some of these things of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we, we do not take your word for granted. We don't take the faithful preaching of your word for granted. We're thankful. We're thankful we're in a place that we can hear it, that we can perceive that it is true, and that we can practice it. I pray now, Lord, in the coming moments, you would help us to diligently examine ourselves to see if we are producing the good work these good works, Lord, these, these fruits of righteousness that you've already begun in our hearts. And if not, Lord, that you would come and prune us and make us more productive for your kingdom. We thank you that your word guards us against folly. And, Lord, that you've given us systems in place, elders, churches, to help guard against falsehood in the church. Everything that we see here, Lord, is nothing but your grace and your loving kindness. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.